Next chapter is called The Watcher. We're back with Ario Hota. What, you don't remember him? Theon, everyone's favourite abused gimp. <laughs> We've solidly left behind the milk of human kindness then with, with, as regards to Theon Greyjoy, have we? Him, that simpering, useless pile of bones. Yeah, he is basically a medieval version for me of the, the gimp in Pulp Fiction, though. He's just sort of in a corner. George, you test my patience, sir. You test my patience. Hello and welcome to part eight of Shark Live Royal's read-through of A Dance with Dragons. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. Business time. It's time to get... <laughs> <laughs> the business is end it... is on the way. Are you sure you want to you sure you want to take us in this direction while we're while we're recording, Matt? You don't want to <laughs> put some it's it's Valentine's after all, isn't it? You put put out yeah. some candles. Yeah. Get down to business. It was just just about sort of the right time for Daenerys and Dario as we left them last to move into the area of free love uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Valentine's weekend. <laughs> was as 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 I remember, they were several thousand miles apart. But maybe that's the best place for their relationship to stay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dario! Fuck! I thought you said Jura. Sorry, no, bollocks. No. <laughs> it's all right. What an ass. We'll just cut that and pretend that you did. You did get I it. I did. Yeah, <laughs> that's really funny. That. Hmm. <laughs> how I laughed at mm, that. And no music aside. <laughs> yes. Um, so this week we're going from a chapter called "The Prince of Winterfell," which is a little ironic, I think. Um, as far <laughs> as a chapter called "The King's Prize," which uh, may also be ironic, but we'll see. Mm. So. Uh, if you're reading along with us, that's the section of book we're covering. It's a fool's hope, isn't it, that anyone actually sticks to those? But um, you've got to have a structure <laughs> well, from somewhere. So, <laughs> well, actually, no. You know what? Um, I think there is a decent chance of that on other books, but on on uh, a Game of Thrones, we are, I think, the only people in the universe with the self-control to stop every <laughs> few pages. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, mind you, if you are reading along that way, fucking kudos. Send us an email. We <laughs> let us let us be ignorant together in our slow reading. Yeah, the place to send your feedback is sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail dot com, or you can get us on Twitter at sharkliveroyal. Uh, the feedback dropped off a little bit in recent weeks, so um, if you do have any thoughts on any of the stuff that's going ahead at the moment, any of the plot twists, any of the uh, interesting character developments, then yeah, do get in touch and let us know. Matt what also, uh, we, we should say, you know, Matt Matt does suffer terrible pangs whenever we have a little bit of a drop-off in the email stream. Mm. He calls me, it's late at night. Dave, <laughs> they don't love us anymore. Not, I don't know why they're not emailing, he says. Yeah, yeah I need positive reinforcement. <laughs> All the time. All the time. All the time. <laughs> uh, okay. You're doing very well today, Matt, by the way. I just looked yeah. Well, let's give let's give them what they want then, Dave, which is a bit more of our um, forensic analysis of this book. So, the Prince of Winterfell is the next yeah. uh, the next chapter. Theon, everyone's favourite abused gimp, and <laughs> <laughs> we, we've we've solidly left behind the milk of human kindness. Then, with, with, as regards to Theon Greyjoy, have we? We're now just like. Him, that 
Yeah. Simpering, it, useless pile of bones. It, he is basically a medieval version for me of the, the gimp in Pulp Fiction now, who's just sort of in the corner. <laughs> well, I mean, that's true. I think that's what he's been for a while. But I think with this level of kind of like easy abuse heaped on his head, he's almost like Hans Molman from The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. So it, it looks, it turns out uh, Bruce, Bruce and Ramsey, the Boltons, have, uh, have won the race to Winterfell. They're already there. And they're getting ready for this wedding, which will wed, quote marks, Arya Stark, which is basically Jean Poole, one of um, one of Sansa's old friends, uh, to Ramsay Bolton. Jean Poole frantically trying to come up with ways she's going to explain this to Sansa if she ever meets her again. Yeah. I was, I, so, I'm sorry, I'm still your friend, I still love you, but uh, I pretended to be your sister in order to consolidate your family's eternal loss of their kingdom. Yeah. Um, she's obviously she's still trying to get away. It's actually uh, I've been calling her Jean for ages, but I think it's supposed to be Jane because there's a little passage where Theon's in his, you know, his, his sort of crazy thinking to himself. He says yeah. Jane Jane rhymes with pain, which is pretty. Cool. Either that, or in this universe, one is supposed to pronounce the word pain peen. <laughs> oh, the peen! Oh, the peen of it all! <laughs> he was a peen in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even have that pun in my brain when I went into that joke, Matt, but I handed off the ball to you in absolute confidence that you would find the gutter and plant us in it. Well done indeed. Yes, I know. Yeah. Anyway, so, so it's, uh, I, think we'll, I think we'll go with Jane, um, all things considered. So Jane is well up for running away if possible, but Theon Stroke Reek is in no position to, to, to do that at the moment. He even sort of considers that as a possible trick. But, um, it's actually it's know, heartbreaking, loyalty. isn't it? Yeah, the the sort of the the extent to which Ramsay's just in his head now, mm. um, even though you know he's all dressed up and he is for the purposes of pantomime the Prince of Winterfell. Mm. It's killing him. Oh. Yeah. Now I hope um, for Jean for Jane's sake that she's sort of one of those teenagers who's into sort of metal and like uh, re- going through a real goth phase because for all, all of the dreadful things that are happening to her here it is the sort of ultimate goth wedding this in the <laughs> goth <goth-wood. laughs> sort of snowy and trees and long dark flowing cloaks and stuff it's just sort of That's it's true. like an, it's, it's basically an evanescence video isn't it <laughs> <laughs> Now, again, whilst reading it, that was not the first thought that came to mind. Um, but now you've said that, that's all I can see. My, thanks, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, so it's a rainy uh, godswood in the Winterfell, all grey apart from sort of the brown eyes of, of Jean, which is interest of Jane, which is interesting because Arya didn't have brown eyes, and Theon's sure that someone's going to notice. And to be honest, let's be honest, e- even if they do notice, no one's going to say anything. Um, there's a packed great hall for the sort of wedding feast. There's a singer yeah. and his six women who's turned up um, to do a bit of <laughs> a few tunes, which is a bit weird. Um, th- 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 well, he's turned up as like one part singer, nine parts pimp, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. I love he turns up, he must be terrible at, at playing songs or something. I bet he turns up and he's just sort of three chords, Wonderwall, over and over and over again. <laughs> but it just whenever he sings, he just sort of waggles his eyebrows in the direction of the women he's trying to sell. And everybody's <laughs> like, oh, I like him. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah we'll have him again. Yeah. 
Um, I've just put here Theon in hell because Theon as Reek is basically in hell at the moment. He's t- he's tortured all the time. He's under constant threat of more torture, which is the worst kind of way. He's sort of flaying, and yeah. everyone hates him. The the sort of the Boltons hate him. Ramsay sort of takes a perverse pleasure in causing him as much pain as possible, and he's probably the guy who likes him the most. And then even sort of the Bolton's enemies all hate him as well. I mean, it, he, he's done some awful things, Theon, as in, and, and the worst, obviously, the sack of Winterfell. But, yeah. Um, if there's anyone who sort of paid the price for this, or the price of his own misdeeds, it's yeah. Theon, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, very much. It's interesting, isn't it? The I think this is an interesting thing George is trying to do with this, where he's sort of trying to stress test the sort of often quite easy hatred that we feel towards bad characters hmm. um, by, you know, setting Theon up as an arrogant wanker who then becomes an arrogant traitorous wanker hmm. who then goes through this, like, absolute harrowing of his mind and soul and personality and stuff, really, really trying to test the boundaries of exactly how much we can hate a fictional human being, which I think is really smart because lesser authors, I think, would just be like, there we go, bad guy, good guy, hate the bad guy, love the good guy, bosh. Mm. Yeah. And this is far more, you know, confronts you far more with your own sort of, your own inhumanity, really, I suppose. Yeah. Now, someone who's also in a difficult position but seems to be very much making the best of it is Manderley, who's having a roaringly good time at this wedding. Um <laughs> He baits this massive pork pie and he's serving yeah. it himself and he manages to eat six slices of it himself. <laughs> <laughs> it just strikes me as a, as a guy who's just like, screw all this, I'm just going to have a massive blowout. Yeah, because yeah, he's in a horrible position, isn't he, Manderley? Like he's, he's, he's the one dancing diplomat left in Westeros. And um, and yeah, I definitely did have that, that feeling when he was dishing out the pies that he was sort of like, you know, laughing so hard on the outside crying on the inside and just serving one for me, one for you, one for me, one for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, there is a... Um, there's a, there's a, something about this <laughs> this pie that I'm not sure is beyond outlandish fan theory or whether it's actually referenced later on. Just in case it is referenced later on, we'll sort of leave it to, to, the, to sort of our... We said we're going to do a final sort of fan theory uh, cast at the end. Um, oh, yeah, yes, just, yes. just to make a little point there um, before we move on. Oh, um, you're killing me with this. You can't trail all of the fan theories <laughs> and have to wait another month and a half to hear. <laughs> this is this is like this is Zeno's paradox. The closer I get to the end of the of my you know my trudge through a song of ice and fire, my my pirouette through a song of ice and fire, um, the more things, the more I'm being reminded that I'm not allowed to look. <laughs> this is you, the thing you're breaking my balls hands <laughs> this is the uh this is the beauty at uh, this the horrid beauty of matt's bunker full of spoilers is it really a mirage which the closer you get <laughs> just fades into the distance <laughs> you bastards all i wanted was to know whether somebody was married to somebody else really or if indeed varus was actually a mermaid <laughs> that's still our favorite fan theory Varys is a mermaid. Varys, fucking mermaid. We'll Honestly. have to go back to that and discuss that one again as well. But Absolutely. Anyway, if you haven't heard, I don't know what. Because the thing is, I don't remember at what point in the series we discussed that, but it is a spectacular theory. Um, but anyway, <laughs> put a pin on it for now. Um, Roos, it turns out, is 
either very strongly suspects or pretty much knows that Manderley is um, hates the Boltons and his sort of coming over and saying, "Oh, I'm, I'm with you now." Is is ringing false? Um, mm. Which is interesting and is a little worrying for Mandalay fans out there, which of which I am one. Um, <laughs> this lady, Lady Dustin, who re- seems to come into the story a bit more now, um, she's a she's this sort of one of the sort of prominent figures in the North who hates the Starks more than almost as much as sort of the Boltons because yeah. we find it a bit more later on, don't we? Yeah. Um, but I think that's a, a few chapters later on. Um, but just, just, just what, to mark Lady she... Dustin? Yeah. No, no, it's the end of this one. I don't, I don't think it is. I think we go back to... No, it's not. It's the end oh, of the we do. The we go chapter. back to Theon, don't we? Because he's yeah. given Theon 12 different fucking names in this week. He's <laughs> yeah. the Prince of Winterfell and Reek and Theon the Gimp and <laughs> the Merlin the Happy Pig and... <laughs> Some other fucking thing. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So George, we'll... you test my patience, sir. You test my patience. Yeah. Um, Roos sort of leaves early with the rest of the laws from this wedding feast because the news has come down of Stannis's approach. Um, <sighs> the only um, the only person who uh, isn't fully involved in the the plan of action is Manderly, who's now rip roaringly drunk. Um, so and he's 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 badgering the singer. To, he's basically like throwing <laughs> requests at the singer. He's like, "Sing what? Sing one about this." He's, at the end, he's like, "Sing one about the Rat King." And all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, which is a step up from what you know your normal sort of wedding band has to put up with. Because at least <laughs> at wedding bands, you've just got somebody's drunk uncle going up and going, "Play the Macarena, Go, play it. Go on, we're gonna do the play it. Everybody, we'll do the Macarena." Here, he's just saying, make up a song about the following six words on pain of death. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the chapter ends, I mean, to bring, sorry to bring it back down, but Reek has to take Jean Poole up to Ramsay's room oh, um, for, for Jean to finally come to face-to-face with the dreadful fate that awaits her. And it basically ends with Ramsay getting Reek to get involved with the wedding night uh, perform a bit of oral to kick things off. Um, oh, I'm... Nice. I mean, j- just just when you just if we did, needed a little bit more of a, of an indication of just just what Ramsey's like. Uh, yeah, there's there's another example. Yeah, yeah, very much. And to me, I mean, this this is from a different angle. Um, the sort of the the thing. My problem with the whole kind of reek sequence hmm. is. I find it hard to get away from the feeling that George is enjoying himself here. <laughs> like, I find it hard to get away from the idea that George, in piling pain upon pain for this character and everybody else who's connected with Ramsey Bolton, um, he's not just sort of, it's a little bit, he's enjoying it a bit much. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, okay, because it's not like it serves to deepen my understanding of, of Ramsey. I'm like, oh, oh, he's horrifying to women as well, is he? You mm. astonish me. Mm. Yeah, I've got to, I'm, I read this sort of thing. And I'm always really uncomfortable when it gets to stuff like this. And I'm always having a little internal battle with myself because I, I want to say this is too much. But at the same time, I've sort of early on in the series said one of the things I like about it is that it's no holds barred and everything and all it's sort of grisly. 
Yeah. You know, there's there's no there's no way where the authors think so. Oh, this is you know this go I'm going too far, and if I suppose I suppose if you make your peace with that early on, and that's one of the sort of reasons that um, the book is so compelling because you don't you don't feel there are any sort of boundaries that the author won't cross, then I suppose yeah. this is the sort of this is the sort of stuff that happens. So it's not it's, but it's not a comfortable reading at all, is it? No, no, yeah, no, absolutely not. No, but I think you might be giving them a bit of an easy ride there because I think it is perfectly possible to write something which is unflinchingly realistic without being prurient, hmm. without being sort of like, look, what other horrible things I can tell you in deep detail, you know? Yeah, um, it's like, there it's are like definitely the, moments. Yeah, it's like the horror film that doesn't need to show the gore. Exactly. Well, I mean, precisely. And as we, you know, we've seen elsewhere, somebody like Stephen King's such a good writer of horror and suspense, precisely because he doesn't show it to you. Mm. Um, you know, it is it is about the unknown. But it, you know, I mean, maybe maybe George thinks there's been entirely too much decorum about reporting this sort of, you know, in in human history, mm. reporting the sort of things that used to go on, and perhaps he wants to be a bit more unflinching about it. And, mm-hmm. and if that is the case, then mission accomplished, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, next chapter is called The Watcher. We're back with Ario Hota. What, you don't remember him? What? <laughs> <laughs> i got to admit, even I, who've read this through two or three times, had a brief moment where I was like, who? <laughs> <laughs> it is though, isn't it? It's that thing where, um, where you've ever been at a football game and a player who, you know, once was quite prominent but has been injured for several years <laughs> finally gets his run back out as a sub and the entire crowd goes, who? <laughs> yeah, so if you don't remember him and, uh, you know, it's, it's, no, it's no shame if you don't. He's the massive uh, black bodyguard for, um, for Doran Martel, uh, Prince, Prince Doran. Um, mm. He's the guy with the massive curved... Um, is it curved axe? I think that's what he fights with. No, it's I this. don't think it's curved. I think it's just fucking enormous. Right. I think okay. he's, he's supposed to be like seven foot tall. Yeah. And his axe is about eight foot tall. And he keeps an edge on it that could shave a second in half. Yeah, yeah. Now, th- th- this is an interesting chapter insofar as it, it, it dips back into sort of the diplomacy between Dawn and, um, and King's Landing. Which is where mm. it, yes. it looks like the next war may come from, especially considering what we know is happening with um, was he Ares Targaryen, the the guy yeah. who's um, sort of been undercover for a while on the narrow boat, and he's on his yeah. way to Dawn to raise his banners. Um, yeah. Now, Balan Swan. So there's, there's another king. Another king's guards arrived after Sir Aerys Oakheart, the uh, hot-headed, hot-trousered. Uh, Kingsguard, who ended up getting himself killed for Ariana. Um, Balan Swans arrive now with the skull of the mountain, and immediately Ario is um, is looking at Balan and thinking this guy's more dangerous than the last Kingsguard. He's a bit tougher and <laughs> more wary. Not difficult though, was it? Because wasn't Oakheart one of the one of the appointments that Cersei made in one of her many fits of extreme governmental competence, where she was just like. <laughs> Uh, him, yeah, go on then. You've got not, your own I'm, sword, have you? I'm not sure. I think he might go back a little further. He always struck me, Oakheart, as the sort of classic white knight in that he's all sort of, um, I don't know, all uh, chivalry. And he, he was a, you know, obviously danger, a sort of a 
skillful fighter, but would also do something like charge blindly into battle. Whereas Baron <laughs> Swan is he's he's equally sort of uh, skillful with a sword, but he's also got a bit more going on upstairs as well. He's he's more wary and harder to fool. Mm. Um, I think yes. it's I think it's summed up by Ario thinks. Um, He's, if they had to, if he had to fight Balan Swan, it'd be much different to how he had to sort of dispatch Oakheart. Because whereas Oakheart yeah. charged at him, um, devil may care. Balan is the kind of guy who would stand behind his sword and wait for him to come to him. Yeah, yeah, I did like that as a little. I mean, it was it almost felt nostalgic. This in a very strange way, didn't it? Getting back into this kind of. You know, knights and fighting and honour and knowing the other guy and the politics and the intrigue and the actual Game of Thrones, which Doran actually says at one point, doesn't he? Mm. By comparison, with the last book full of Arya Stark goes for a walk, (laughs) Brienne of Tarth goes for a really long and inconclusively ended walk, um... Tyrion's Nautical Adventures, volumes one through seven... (laughs) All these other characters that I've never met before, where George just—it was what it's like—is like, um, like you know, if you ever see a film where like uh, they they show kind of somebody zooming in from a long, long way away from like a first-person perspective through binoculars or something, and it's all really blurry when they zoom out, or they zoom out and they have to kind of resharpen the image. It's been <laughs> like that yeah. ever since, ever since the start of the Feast of Crows. So this stuff is great. It's like a flashback. Yeah, oh, how interesting diplomacy, fascinating, and there's, there's a lot of tension as well because obviously the 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 thing that's but this is supposed to smooth things over between these two um, major powers, and mm. Balon's got this massive skull which looks like it's the mountains, mm. and um, everyone has a drink apart from I think one of the sand snakes who's still not appeased. Um, and ba- <laughs> Balon's offering these terms. He's saying. Um, Marcella and uh, and Tristan, the uh, uh, one of uh, Doran's sons, should uh, to come back to King's Landing. Um, Doran to be offered a seat on the small council. Um, this is, I don't know, it, it, it's it's an offer of sort of smoothing smoothing things over. And yeah. Doran is is a very is still very suspicious, isn't he? Quite rightly, it seems. Yeah, quite rightly. I mean, I quite like the amount of shit that Doran cops for from his like absurdly comically reckless relatives like how this this is like shameless is what it is but with one sane person at the middle of it it's just an entire family that's fucking bonkers but it's got one person in the middle going steady on easy now careful you know do the sensible thing and all of that and all he cops for is shit yeah. And um, and I really do quite like like how in the, finally in this bit everybody ends up being like yeah you're probably right Dora aren't you yeah yeah, yeah. all right nice one yeah okay carry on <laughs> yeah because not for nothing one of the um, ways that his relatives is gutting him into all kinds of trouble is this failed Ariana rebellion which ended up with Marcella getting a basically half a face chopped off yeah. And, oh, well, and, and we and didn't we didn't know whether it was more than that actually until recently, did we? Yeah, yeah. And they're basically thinking, well, what on earth is Balan Swan going to say when he sees this? Because <laughs> he's come to pick her up. <laughs> I love. I absolutely love that they're like that. They're in full on 
mid nineties sitcom territory here, aren't they? <laughs> They're just keeping them apart for as long as possible and like, oh have you seen in here? Look, isn't it interesting how we've decorated this room? Oh look, oh I've dropped something off the balcony. Come and help me with it. No, no you'll see her in a second, don't worry about it. No, she's coming, she's coming. Yeah. <laughs> I mean how do you sell this? Your princess um, half her face is missing now and remember your sworn brother the guy who came along to protect her well he's dead <laughs> it was all legit uh, <laughs> um, but they do have a plan they've got a plan they're basically <laughs> love, a cunning, I, I, is I love, it a cunning plan, plan Matt by any chance <laughs> I absolutely love the plan it's blame it on Dark Star which <laughs> ah, yes <laughs> yes <laughs> Purposeful, <laughs> purposeful Radiohead reference. Do you think? <laughs> yeah, the the only emo night um, ever to <laughs> arrive <laughs> in Westeros. <laughs> oh, glorious, glorious. Yeah. Dark Star is is right on the cusp of being a comedy character for me. Um, he's yeah. just ridiculous. But anyway, that's the yeah. idea. They're going to blame it on some sort of assassination attempt by Dark Star, who's who's disappeared now. He's sort yeah. of on the run. Yeah. Um, it turns out there's not the only lie being told because Doran's got his own spies at King's Landing and they've told him that this plan to to bring his son and Marcella back to King's Landing the idea is that they're going to be ambushed by basically by King's troops dressed as bandits sort of on the road and mm. they're actually going to get them to shout half man as they do it as well they basically want to kill Tristan and blame it on Tyrion yeah, yeah, uh, but Doran's too too quick for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and good as well because it seems to me that apart from Doran, everybody in Dawn has all the sort of self-preservation diplomatic instinct of a rabid puppy. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. it's not going to go well. Yeah. So Dorian has a few plans of his own, which he's going to set into play instead now. The first is he's going to get Sabalin to go after Darkstar, basically saying he's the guy who tried to kill the princess. You best go, you know, you've got all my support in bringing him to justice. And his thing is going to send um, the the most, the angriest of the Sand Snakes, Obara, with him. Um, he's going to send Lady Nim, who's another Sand Snake, to King's Landing to sit on the small council. A pound to be a fly on that wall. Can you yeah. imagine? Just yeah. sitting there, boiling over with rage. Nobody else to push against except the people running the rest of the country. <laughs> Fuck them right up. And he's sending Tiana as well, the other Sand Snake, to the Sept um, to join sort of the Holy Orders there. He's basically trying to infiltrate as many key parts of King's Landing as possible. Um, all sort of part of this wider game of putting Daenerys back on the uh, back on the throne. Yeah. It's all it's all quite tenuous still though, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's all like yeah, we'll definitely we'll bring it back because Quentin is definitely a trustworthy vessel, and um, which which we have reason to doubt, um, and uh, and it'll all go exactly the way we expect it to. So you better get moving quick because you'll be there any minute. Yeah. We assume. Yeah. Well, the thing is, they think that's happening now because they've heard of this fleet leaving Lys, which is basically we know is. Um, is the guy from the narrow boat, Aegon. Yeah. Um, but he's assuming that's Daenerys and Quentin on the way back. So he thinks things are moving <laughs> a lot quicker than they are now. Which <laughs> you could see why I would think that. Um, yeah. But it's it's a big it's a kind of a big mistake. Um, although it's, I suppose it's a spectacular mistake. Yeah. Although I suppose 
from a sort of ruthless point of view, the, the fact remains a Targaryen's on the way who you can join up with. It's just not going to be his son with him. Um, yeah, yeah, but then, but that you can join up with him. Fair enough. But he's got no pressing reason to give a shit about you. Yeah. yeah. Whereas you know the plan was for Daenerys to be coming back and looking for a family-in-law that she could uh, she could get jiggy with the warfare. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Now it it transpires that um, since the sort of War of the Five Kings began, the Viper is the only Dornishman to I suppose the only Dornishman who's still you know passport carrying Dornishman because he probably got a lot of ex Dornishmen knocking about, but he's the only one <laughs> to have died um, in this War of the Five Kings, whereas every yeah. other every other of these sort of former kingdoms have bled. And yeah. Dorian isn't still isn't hundred percent sure whether that's to his credit or his shame. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, I did think that was an interesting moment. To me, it's absolutely to his credit because the the, the War of the Five Nobeds was a complete shit show, wasn't it? And when mm. one when like sort of the whip hand, if you like, in in your political situation, is held by somebody as truly fucking unhinged as Cersei, you know, all, all bets are off. Um, and I think you're, you're well off kind of taking your strategic advantage of having a slightly more removed physical position and being like, eh, just going to wait and see how this plays out. Mm. Um, I, was th- I was actually thinking about this earlier on. I was thinking all the way back right to the start of the series where um, Cersei sends somebody to have Bran killed. Mm. And I was like, that's just the craziest fucking thing I've ever seen in my... I, just thinking about now, like knowing the depth of the world and the whole situation, I'm like... It really did start a war, and she's done many things since that have been as crazy as that, right? I, I thought I thought Joffrey um, was behind that. Oh, I'm was pretty, he? I'm pretty sure it was him in the end, yeah. He might have been crazier, but he, he sort of stole that dagger and um, and gave it to like a cat's paw who went to kill Bran. I'm not quite sure why. It's all a bit ancient history-ish to me, this. I can't even exactly remember. Because Littlefinger was implicated for a while as well, wasn't he? Yeah. But I think it all ended up transpiring that it was just a crazy move from Joffrey. Oh, okay. So I, had, I had always assumed that it was it was just Cersei because Bran caught her and Jamie shagging mm. that, um, that, you know, to, to sort of cover it up. All right, fair enough. In, in my defence... Though I have read this book probably at greater length than any other human being in the history of anything. Yeah. That means that a, a, a Game of Thrones was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it might have been Joffrey by way of sort of a Robert Baratheon who will rib me of this turbulent priest kind of thing where he heard oh, something yeah, his dad yeah. said and thought I'll impress yeah. him by... Like by knocking off, by becoming kids. an even more murderous bastard. Yeah, we should. Re- I should really research this, but for, I'll have a look at this for next time. And if you've, um, if you want to help me out, actually, charlottelivroyalpodcast.com. <laughs> if you're more professional a- at this than we are, hit <laughs> us up. <laughs> save me a visit to a wiki of ice and fire. Um, but yeah, so uh, where were we? I've lost. Oh yeah, so so that's yeah, that's the sort of the long term. Um, the long-term result of of Doran's uh, work so far has been to keep his his kingdom out of the the war, which many I think from our perspective in this day and age would be considered quite a good thing, especially considering there doesn't seem to be a great deal of political gain from the um, f- for the people who have been involved. It's not yeah, exactly gone yeah. well for most of those kingdoms, has it? <laughs> yeah. uh, next up is John. Chapter about John uh, Val is going beyond the wall. She's off to try and find Tormund 
and sort of bring a few more wildlings on site seems a very dangerous thing to do but you know John's thinking she knows the uh, she knows the wild so she should be okay I like Surely this exchange where Dolores Ed says basically this is going to end badly and John's like well you always say that and he says and usually I'm right <laughs> <laughs> I did have a good chuckle at that that was a moment where I, I definitely I laughed aloud because I was like yeah you know fair enough like that's difficult to describe the the story arc of a song of ice and fire as being anything other than Dolores said was right, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, John continues to basically troll everybody at Castle Black. Um, I'm <laughs> making the decisions, and I couldn't give two tosses what anyone else thinks. He offers the first builder, the giant, who uh, who we we've basically to sum this guy. I mean, we we had a bit of a laugh about him in the last cast, um, going on a. Sleep, semi-sleeping rampage, which he hasn't really done, but you feel could happen at any moment. Um, mm. He's basically sort of twice as big and half as clever as Hodor, isn't he? Um, and <laughs> a lot more dangerous. Um, Terrifying. And so he's been offered... The first build has been offered the giant. I'm not sure it's gone down well. He's he's made leathers, uh, this wildling who's taken the black, the master of ta- at arms. You can see the mm. logic. He's thinking, if you want to learn how to kill wildlings, you need to know how to fight like them. Having said that, you know, he's increasingly aware that it's not really wildlings that are the enemy, so I'm not really sure what, what he's doing there. It's obviously a very unpopular choice, because it's, it's a wildling. Yeah. Um, he's decided Satin should be his personal steward. Now, aside from the <laughs> fact that this will create all kinds of rumours around Castle yeah, Black... Well, quite. I mean, it, the, the, the problem with this, I mean, he, he makes a Good point that, you know, this guy's really loyal, he knows what he's doing, why shouldn't I promote someone just on merit? But it's also, do you remember when John was made personal steward? Yeah. It's it's a sign of, this guy is going to be the next Lord Commander, basically. Yeah. Or will soon be the next Lord Commander. So obviously, yeah. um, in the world that this is, that's not going to go down well either. Um uh, but again, but do you know what I mean about this with John? Yeah. He just seems to be making all these decisions, saying, you "Just suck it up, the rest of you. I'm, I'm right, and I, yeah. you know, this isn't a democracy." So, yeah, this is what's well, happening. and at a certain point, he has to act that way, doesn't he? He can't, you know. I think this is again, this is you know, kill, kill the boy, John Snow. I think is what is the thing that he's got running through his head while he's doing this. Yeah, but again, I think this is actually this is more the boy than he thinks it is. Yeah, just getting carried away with authority instead of using it judiciously. I have to say, you're still doing incredibly well for a 16 year old who's in charge of an army. That's yeah. still fa- fairly good there, John. But um, yeah, I mean, promoting Satin to that place for me, it's like, well, I mean, I think he's given himself more of a job than he needs to there because what he's it's another job convincing the Night's Watch not only that he should still be in charge, but that this guy should follow him. And as mm. far as we can tell, I mean, he's called Satin, for fuck's sake. Even if, <laughs> even if he was nothing else, everybody would be like, Satin, you're telling me the man I'm supposed to follow into battle is called Satin. <laughs> his brother called fucking Lace Hanky. I'm going home. And by the way, I'm only halfway through the unpopular decisions that he's making here. <laughs> um, so, Carry so- on, please. It's sending away Val basically to get Tormund and as many wildlings as possible to turn up so we can let them in. Um, mm. That's not popular either. Although, again, this is a wider thing where John's saying, he's not won the argument yet, but he's saying we need living wildlings on our side of the wall 
rather than dead wildlings on their side who are going to turn into whites. Um, Smackdown argument there. Yeah, yeah right. that one makes Drops a lot of sense. Drops mic really. argument, absolutely. And I can't quite believe that everybody's still so... I mean, because they know the whites exist now. It's not like, oh, old Nan stories, is it, eh? It's mm. like, oh, yeah, I saw with my own eyes the fact that my dead brothers will rise again and try and kill me. So everybody's still like, oh, we don't like them wildlings. Yeah, you know, I, it's, I think it's because if you've grown up and spent your entire life being told that these are the enemy and uh, if you let them south of the wall, they'll just go on the rampage, raping and pillaging everywhere... Yeah. Your approach would probably be let's find as many of them as possible, sure, and kill them and burn them. So yeah. we don't have to because it's it's even more dangerous to have them alive south of the wall. Because I'd imagine from a um, uh, a sort of a point of view of someone like Bowen Marsh, you're thinking the likelihood is that we'll face a lot of whites on one side of the wall while we're having the castle burned on our side by these wildlings. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's by modern standards. It's basic. That's basically advocating genocide, which we all agree is, you know, a bit of a bad thing these days. <laughs> but that would be the mindset that that the. Um, I think that's the mindset you need to try and imagine. The uh, yeah. a lot of the members of the Night's Watcher have got. I think that's a very good point. I also think there is. They actually talk a little bit about this with. Um, uh, where they're like, you know, John goes through a list of all these people who are on the wall now who are sworn brothers and look what they used to do before. Hmm. Um, and I think it's very powerful that you can, basically, you can create a fighting force out of all stations of society, you know, whatever they were back home, and, you know, overcome this very entrenched class system as long as you have a class that they can all look down on and that's what the wildlings are for. Hmm. And then when you when you start saying the wildlings are all right, that you know, it all starts turning inwards. It all starts going. Well, then why the fuck should I trust my hands in the in my life in the hands of you know that multiple rapist over there or whatever? Yeah. Um. You know, and it, and it you know, it's interesting that snobbery is powerful even at the end of the world. Um. And and I think it's so stupid. It's so self destructive. Hmm. Yeah. Uh. The other thing that we hear in this chapter is that a. A wildling called Mother Mole, um, cracking name, is gathering followers at a place called Hard Home. Um, mm. Now, she's basically had this prophecy saying that ships will come to take us to safety if we all congregate at this place called Hard Home. It's a former coastal town north of the Wall, which has got this really evil reputation of um, basically sort of... It all it died out because of some attack. It's sort of basically a classic ghost town, isn't it? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and so evocatively described as well. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, at this point, we're suffering a bit from having having seen series five of the TV series. Yeah. So Hard Home's actually, you know, very very notable, very impressive um, uh, episode. Yeah. Um, that that series, but the the description of it in the book for me far outstripped the presentation of it in the TV series. And the TV mm. series it was great, but in the book it's like fuck because it really it locates it on the edge of the world. And this you know it's the first proper town north of the wall and all of this, mm. and and you just get far more of a sense of the kind of vast, terrifying frozen expanse of the north and how incredibly difficult it is for human life to survive there mm. by comparison with. Um, 
you know, with with the kind of the TV series, which has to show you faces and places and and be very kind of time bound. Yeah. Um, so I yeah, I think really powerful. Loved it. Yeah, John says basically we've got to go and save as many of them as possible. If there's this massive group of wildlings congregating in this area, we've got to go get them. Basically, because if they all die, they get attacked and are all killed. They're all there's basically a white army on the way. Yeah. But again. It's not going to be a popular decision. So it's basically this whole chapter is John making a lot of unpopular decisions. Yeah, uh, yeah. Once again, the the um, the the John Snow MBA probably not going to be a lot of takers for that. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Um, next chapter is Tyrion back off across the narrow sea. He's uh, he's riding a pig, not Penny. Um, <laughs> that's a cheap shot. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> For shame, Matthew. For shame. <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? That it um, is. Yeah. No. So, he, so he's taking part in this joust, um, which he the last chapter was saying absolutely in no circumstance he would he do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it opened on this, and I was like, oh, huh. And then he goes into a sort of daydream about being Jamie on top of a horse, and I'm like. George, were you meaning to edit all of this shit out and then you just decided to leave it in? This is a bit of a strange place to take one of your most relatable and likeable characters. Yeah. It turns out the reason he's doing it is because they've been drifting for 14 days now and the sailors are getting really restless and they've stopped seeing Tyrion as and um, and Penny as a sort of good luck charms and now are thinking yeah. they may be the reason that bad luck has, has approached them and also the, one or two of them were saying the pig's been looking quite tasty so <laughs> now on that one I'd be right with them if there was a pig on board ship and we'd been becalmed for weeks I'd be looking at that pig with intent um, however um, I do I do quite like how openly meaningless their kind of philosophy of luck is shown to be in this particular context, yeah, right, yeah. like where you know, so what? What it really is is they're different. And while I'm feeling optimistic, that means it's a good thing. And when I'm feeling pessimistic, that means it's their fault, bastards. And all <laughs> it is really is they're shorter than I am, so it must be something to do with them for reasons. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tyrion and Jorah have an argument again about basically about what Daenerys is going to do with them once they arrive. Uh, Tyrion basically telling Jorah that. Maybe he isn't going to get forgiveness. This ends yeah. as it pretty much always does in Jorah punching Tyrion in the face. <laughs> um, and Pe- Penny comes over to to like look after him and says, "You've got to be careful around the big people." And I thought that was quite, I thought it was quite interesting because I think this is a lesson that Tyrion's having to slowly learn, having mm. having spent most of his life in an extremely privileged position as a dwarf where some yeah. of the rules didn't apply to him. Some of the sort of slights and the fact he wasn't taken seriously is, yeah, terrible. But the sort of physical danger that these like, dwarves are under in this world every day am- yeah. among sort of the big people is something he's never had to deal with until he's been sort of an outcast. Yeah. Yeah, very, very true. And, um, and so it was kind of heartbreaking seeing this happen as well because you, what you want is for him to say to her no look it's possible for things to be better than this you know I've been powerful my whole life and I've I've exercised power far beyond the scope of my body and this is how I've done it you know and I kind of wanted him to, to come right back with a sort of you know lessons in power mongering um, which was wishful thinking really because you know he is in a lot of danger nobody knows who he is you know and you know he's just he's in trouble 
Um, I'll tell you another thing that I noticed here, though, was um, in order to deal with this with this embarrassment, he starts drinking rum, right? Mm. And I, I, I think it might say something really bad about when and where I grew up, but I was just completely astounded that somebody who has been for three books very clearly basically an alcoholic didn't know that spirits are stronger than wine. Mm. Like, because to me, that's just completely self-evident. That's just something that everybody knows. And indeed, when people set out to get sloppy drunk, they go straight to the spirits, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like yeah, sort of weird. a sheltered upbringing if you had. <laughs> of course, the rum's stronger. Captain, Captain and Coke. No, just the captain. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I think he may have got so drunk off spirits once when he was a teenager that he doesn't remember it. And ever since then, Tywin saw it and said, under no circumstances must he be even aware of the existence of this stuff. As far as Tyrion Lannister is concerned, wine is alcohol and beer, if he must drink it, nothing else. <laughs> That's amazing. I love this idea of like Tywin Lannister coming over all sort of moral majority about it. We must keep... This high volume alcohol out of the idiot hands of my youngest son. <laughs> they sort of they're all in the great hall one day and they're having a celebration and someone shout, someone's just shouting something. Bring out the rum just as Tyrion walks in and he just goes, Bring out the rumblingly good wine. <laughs> <laughs> Where the fuck are we gonna get rumblingly good wine from? How oh, fucking what even is that? I better bring it out though. Lannister's got a look on, and I'm telling you, I'm not going out there with a bottle full of Captain Morgan. No, no. Yeah. Um, now, the wind picks up, finally. Hooray! Uh, but a mm. massive storm's on the way. Oh, no! <laughs> and this is a serious storm, which is coming in as well. So they, they yeah. dash off below decks. Um, they have this sort of kiss, and they both realise they're not really into it. Um, so Tyrion, I hope he gets nice and drunk because uh, they basically spend the storm rolling around in loads of pig shit because the pigs are <laughs> crazy, just crapping everywhere. Yeah, it, it was it was all in all a fairly ignominious scene, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I particularly liked um, this this bit though when you know she sort of kisses him because she doesn't want to. She essentially she's saying you know I don't want to die a virgin, hmm. and. Um, and Tyrion, of all people, starts he starts sort of Tyrion Lannister's abstinence class. And he's like, it's better if you don't, honestly. Take it from me. Sex ruins you. It's terrible. It's awful. Don't do it. Don't. I, just, I quite love that any character in A Song of Ice and Fire being like, yeah, don't have sex. Mm. Just, just don't do it. Bad idea, really. Yeah, yeah. Now, things are bad below decks, but... Um some of the other crew have it even worse. The captain ends up breaking both of his legs um, in the storm. Three of the crew are washed overboard and killed. And the cook is blinded by boiling fat. Now, hang on a minute. <laughs> what is he doing, the cook, here? It's the middle of the storm, and he's what? Making fried chicken. I mean, <laughs> did, did, did no one say, can we not have the cold meats platter today? <laughs> 
have something cold. Is, is there any other way that you can cook something other than... Because it's not like there's a gas bottle on the go either, is there? He's got to make a fire on a wooden ship where the wall is becoming the floor, is becoming the ceiling on a fairly regular plate. Of course he got fucking blinded. I'm surprised he didn't burn a hole in the deck, which is also the ceiling. What is he thinking? Jeez. <laughs> He's like, oh, they'll, they'll love a bit of this once they've, uh, once they've started the yeah, storm. I was going to say, really proactively trying to raise everybody's spirits. Here we go, lads. Here we go. Chips for everybody. Yeah. Oh, my eyes. Oh, oh. I immediately regret this decision. Just imagine the ship's rolling around. The, the the sails have been washed overboard. Desperately trying to get the trying to get the rigging down. The captain's breaking his legs as he's being thrown about. And just below decks, the, the chef's got the deep fat fryer on. He's flambing <laughs> pineapples. <laughs> Living the dream. Deep fried Mars bars going in one per man. It's been a tough week. It's been a tough week. Let's throw those in there. Yeah, I just I read that and I just had to do a double take. I had to read it again. I thought, surely not. What's he up to? But anyway. And they get to the eye of the storm. It's all calm. Tyrion goes back above decks. And um, it's basically just in time for the storm to restart. And he basically sees the mainmast burst. It just explodes everywhere. And... Um, I think he does. He get hit by a bit of the. I think a bit of the sort of shard of it as well. Yeah, it goes through his. Goes through boot. He says boots, breeches, and his calf. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah, and nine other sailors are, are lost, including Makoro, the Red Priest, who yeah. gets swept overboard. I thought um, this was an interesting little wrinkle. This thing with Makoro, mm. because he sort of like when they get to when the storm's coming in, and what a great description that is, by the way. Yeah. All purples and blacks and greens and were oh yeah, scary but brilliant. Um, uh, but Makoro, you know, Tyrion's like, oh, this is what she meant, and Makoro's like, yeah, I knew. And then he dies, and mm. I can't work out if that's another instance of somebody who follows the Red God seeing something extremely indistinct and gnomic in the flames, and then just styling it out and being like, yeah, knew that was coming, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Or if he really did see his own death coming and just turned to meet it calmly. I don't know which one of those would be a better story, to be honest with you. I think they're both pretty great. Yeah, I got a sort of sense of from his character, it's probably more like the latter, that he's just very much, you know, given up to fate. And just, you know, if he sees something that's going to happen, it's going to happen. And he just prepares himself as best to deal with it. Um mm. But yeah, I mean, and then we're into the sheer horror of the fact that the ship is now just a drifting, useless wreck. And um, they're expecting just to drift along until they all starve now. Mm. Um, It's kind of like the medieval equivalent of being sort of, I don't know, losing your... um, It always reminds me a bit of sort of the Major Tom. Uh, from David Bowie, just sort of drifting in space, with just waiting yeah. to die because you just, you know yeah. you're stuck, you're drifting. Yeah. Um, the, the, the some of the rowers, some of the sort of sailors, are sent out in this little sort of rowing boat to tug the boat along, and they cut the line and row off. And yeah. again, I thought this is this is mad because it's, you, you obviously it's 
dangerous enough. You, you you're hopeless enough on the on the main ship. But at least you've got food and provisions, and you know, a yeah. better chance of being spotted because you're a bigger ship. You're set yeah. off in a little rowing boat. How long are you going to last? Like ten of you on a boat? Yeah. Well, I mean, exactly, and that's where, you know, horror stories at sea come from, isn't it? You know, you mm. end up people eating other people on board ships like that, boats like that, you should say. Yeah, and I suppose that is how some some survivors from things like whaling ships actually did survive. The ones who survived were the ones who sort of got in the got in the lifeboats and made a row for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It just seems counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, but, you know... Maybe they should have stuck because they do get rescued. Well, it looks like they're going to get rescued. Um, but it looks like the rescuers are going to be slavers, which doesn't seem like a very... I mean, it's probably a, a better fate than what was awaiting them and the slow, drifting, starvation death. But slavery isn't much better, is it? No, no, it's not at all. And um, I, I couldn't really work out whether... Jura being so contemptuous of slavers, you know, I, I didn't need, to, I don't need to know what they are. I can mm. smell them, slavers. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, that is a completely reasonable position to take. On the other hand, Jura is himself a former slaver, and that's why he had to leave Westeros in the first place. Yeah. So is this, is this, the, you know, the is this sort of, you know, um. Uh, what's his name? Uh, John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, who before he became a vicar was a slaver and had this whole change in heart and life, and you know became you know you know an, an anti-slavery campaigner. Yeah. Right? Is it a change in heart, or is it just another example of I love Daenerys so much that I will be found in a brothel trying to shag women who look vaguely like her? <laughs> <laughs> you know, is it is it Jorah being you know having gone through a sort of sort of, you know, change in attitude? Or is it just his heroic capacity for self-deception and self-righteousness? What do you think? <laughs> I think I'm leaning more towards the, the latter there with that. <laughs> Option B. No redemption, just hubris. Yeah. Also, mate, I think he probably is a bit... There probably is an element of him saying that, being a change, deciding that he's a changed man now. But yeah. um, I wonder also if the way he got caught slaving was like the slavers let him down a bit and the their the sort of indiscretions got him caught and he can't he's just the kind of character who would entirely blame the slavers for it you are absolutely right there aren't you that is exactly what he would do bloody slavers yeah i mean obviously I've, he would try and have all of his cake and eat all of it too he'd yeah. be like oh yeah yeah no a terrible thing very glad left it behind me dark time in my life but i tell you what if those slavers haven't fucking let me down, I'll be coining it hand over fist at that shit right now. Yeah. I'm just waiting for the conversation, and I'm, pre- I'm surely Tyrion's going to have it sooner or later, where he basically just turns around to Jorah and says, oh, look, everything's everyone else's fault, isn't it? It's yeah. never your fault, is it? Yeah. Oh, it'll be great when it happens. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. He'll lose the rest of his teeth when he does that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the danger. Um, speaking of people who've lost teeth, back with Theon, the Turncloak, um, his new name. He's had more <laughs> names than... <laughs> he's had a lot of names. P. I was going to say that. Well, he's, like, he's like a sort of <laughs> mid-90s rap act, isn't he? Um, how, yeah. um, what was it, Tupac recorded a whole album as Machiavelli. Yeah. That, he's just got, you know, side project after side project after side project. This one, I prediction, this one is going to be his goth phase. <laughs> 
Do you reckon we should start... Demu Borgia shit. <laughs> Do you reckon we should start call, just calling him the artist formerly known as Theon Greyjoy? Yes! Yes, we should! Outstanding! <laughs> okay, so we're back with the Turncloak, a.k.a. the artist formerly known as Theon Greyjoy. Uh, <laughs> He shouldn't entertain me that much, that. It's a joke from 20 years ago, but it's glorious. <laughs> he's he's still at Winterfell, obviously. Um, is Theon slowly becoming interesting again? Because there there seems to be the first sort of stirrings here of, of him at least thinking about ways of getting himself out of this situation. He's been sort of on the floor for a long time now. And I don't know, I just got the first inklings here as he's going for these sort of lonely walks around. His train of thoughts are moving towards, is it possible for me to sort of pick myself up off the floor here? Or is it too dangerous yeah. to even consider doing that? Yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I noticed that as well. I'm glad you, glad you mentioned it because it's, to be honest, one of the tiresome things about the whole Reek storyline has been, first of all, been exactly the length at which George seems to take great delight in dicking all over a character. Hmm. And at a certain point, you're like, George, I've got the point. But actually, it is also that I don't, it, there's no dramatic tension whatsoever in any of those chapters because I'm just like, and at the end of it, Reek, Reek, it rhymes with something else. Yeah. You know, and it just doesn't change and there's no, there's no new kind of development or anything in it so as he's wandering around Winterfell it's almost like presenting him with all of his crimes Mm. he's kind of forcing him to go through them and repent of them in a sense and like actually bring them out into his brain and deal with them and work out what he did wrong and sort of own them to a certain extent Mm. rather than just having them back in his head and you know kind of creating this massive vacuum of character which has been so enormously kind of exploited by Ramsay Bolton so Mm. I think I think you're right. I, yeah, it's, it's a great call. Like I would be, I'd be very interested to see if he changes something because he's been treading water for too long. And mm. if you're going to do that, you know, give the chapter to somebody else more interesting. Yeah. So um, Theon's in this in this great hall. The singer's up again doing his thing. Uh, the singer is singing the uh, the song about the Dornishman's wife, and he changes the words to Northman's daughter, mm. and. Um, the lords sort of laugh at it and they all find it hilarious and he's really popular for it. Um, But it could have just as easily gone the other way. And this just really struck me that a singer in this sort of world, okay, you need to have obviously a good voice and, you know, sound okay. But as as much of the challenges, you need to sort of have the instincts of a diplomat as well, don't you? You need to know when to make the right joke and when to take the chance because getting that wrong ends your life doesn't it Roos or yeah. Ramsey just kills him and probably in, in an absolute way. twinkling yeah, yeah. And, and doing it in verse as well everybody yeah. else gets to sit there and kind of you know look sort of gnomic or stare off into the middle distance or stroke their chin a little bit or make some joke and you know it's all very courtly and you know quite perhaps quite mm. slow but if fucking singer's got to do it in 4-4 four, four time <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah terrifying yeah I mean, I mean we saw some of this with the whole singer's um, sort of intrigue down in King's Landing during Joffrey's wedding and mm. the, the positioning and the, the fact that one of them were getting killed because he overreached himself. But uh, I just quite like the sort of little subculture that's going on there and the fact that it's just like almost any other... Even the, even the singers in this world live mm. in sort of a high-stakes life-or-death moment-to-moment game, yeah. really. 
yeah. just just as the knights do, just as the peasants do in, in various ways. Um, yeah. And you have little or less control over a lot of these things more often than not. Um, and de- yeah. basically, you know, depending on your, depending on sort of what you're born into, you'll have more control over the direction of your life. But everybody's got to gamble at some point. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, very, very much. And it, I, I, had a, I did have a little moment here of like, if this is an accurate depiction of kind of how how your sort of European monarchies and nations used to go, one begins to understand why, you know, sort of the state and democracy was seen as such a chuffing good thing a couple of hundred years ago. Everybody's like, you mean we can do things where we're not completely dependent upon the caprice and whim of one person chosen by birth i think we'll go for that to be honest shall we lads shall we shall we have that let's let's make that happen mm. yeah this is such a high stakes horrible universe isn't it yeah and also um the sort of the power of religion um oh yeah that, yeah you know when it, it religion tends to do a lot better when most people genuinely think they might not wake up the next day you know it, <laughs> it suddenly seems a lot more immediate whether or not you sort of whether or not you you were involved in a religion then, um, and I think that's all tied up in the whole medieval thought process as well. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's a good shout as well. Yeah. I mean, it's in a similar way to to that. You know, um, the old uh, phrase "no atheist on the battlefield" um, that it, it does tend to sort <laughs> yeah. of sharpen the mind a little. Yes, yeah. probably yeah, a little yeah. unfair to atheists. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but, but let's not get let's not get into that. That's a that's a hour long podcast discussion in this. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Tune in for the serious stuff <laughs> next time. We'll do a, a shark cage full of religious discussion. Yeah. Um. The, one of the washerwomen. One of the sort of I don't I don't really know how to describe these women. One of the sort of singers singers washerwomen basically, um, comes over to Theon to have a chat and. He sort of goes, no, leaves because he just doesn't know how to speak to anyone like that anymore. Um, Mm. Even though, sort of, again, I think she's there basically as much as anything to show how different he is to how he was when he was Theon Greyjoy. Um, Mm. She's she's sort of pressing him about how he managed to take Winterfell, and even that, even his sort of greatest story, he doesn't want to talk about. Mm. Um, Then he's he goes for this sort of lonely walk through the night. Um, the build, there's a storm coming in, which is he thinks is going to be very bad news for Stannis because there's there's nothing worse than being outside a castle during a storm yeah. like that. Yeah, especially if you're not used to it. And a lot of these guys in his army aren't from the north as well. Mm. Um, also, the uh, some of the guards are building snowmen, um, <laughs> partly just for a laugh, and I think partly to give the impression of more men on the wall than there are, but mainly just for a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Height of military strategy, that, isn't it? Lads, we need to get, we need to give the impression of far greater force than we currently possess. Hang on a minute, sir. Tell you what, hand me that carrot. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it worked for Jon Snow. They stuck scarecrows at the top of the wall, didn't they? That is true. Work. That's completely true. <laughs> uh, the, the unforeseen tactical upsides of reading a lot of Raymond Briggs as a kid. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like how they're making some snowmen to, um, like, in the shape of the different lords as well, and they make one enormous snowman, which is basically Mandalay. <laughs> <that the> <laughs> <laughs> he 
He's definitely. You imagine him, can't you? If they had um, telescope at the other end on Stannis's end, it's like, are they? Have they really got that many people? Yeah, I mean, I, I would personally, I would have expected it to be um, to be Snowman, but look, there's one fat bastard right over there. He's, I'm fucking telling you, they've got a pork <laughs> pie in his hand and everything. It's him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah um, so that's quite interesting. He he later meets Lady Dustin, <clears throat> who asks to see the crypts, and uh, and Theon is one of the only people who knows how to get down there. And as they're walking across the courtyard. Lady Dustin hears the the crying coming from Ramsay's room. It's basically Jane, and mm. um, and she says to Theon, "Look, this is going to be a problem for for Ramsay. Not because, um, basically because it's it's upsetting the Northmen, um, yeah. because they still obviously have a lot of fondness for the Starks, and basically to keep this alliance smooth, he's got to treat her well, and he can't mm. get away with doing this because." Eventually, the Northern Lords won't stand for it. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. I thought that was quite um, astute from this uh, from Lady Dustin, and something yes, that very, very something much. that Roose Bolton would pick up on, and Ramsay just would never even think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly, and that is the difference, isn't it, between Ramsay, Ramsay, who essentially somehow, even despite not growing up as the son of a lord, is exactly as spoiled and myopically self-involved as you expect your sort of standard rich kid frat boy type to be um, in terms of, you know, he's exact, he is the idiot offspring who will ruin his father's legacy. You know, mm. not, not that it's a particularly shining legacy to begin with, but you know, it's, it's at least established and you know, Ramsey's just would be perfectly happy. We saw this in the, the last chapter he was in as well. Be perfectly mm. happy running around the place, killing X, Y, Z, go on, shoot him, dad, kill him, kill him, you know, yeah. um, no sense of proportion at all. I found it, so I found the introduction of Lady Dustin as this sort of like credible, sceptical voice really interesting here. Mm. We go down into this, on this rather strange journey down into the crypts, and uh, it's basically just a chance to find out a bit more about Lady Dustin. Um, mm. She explains that she was supposed to marry Brandon Stark, the eldest of the sort of the, the old um, sort of Ned's generation of, of brothers and sisters. And then she was supposed to marry Ned. She came very close to it and then didn't, which was which was one slight against her and her family. And then yeah. the guy she did marry ended up going fighting in Robert's Rebellion and getting killed. <laughs> and and all this has sort of led her to become really bitter towards the Starks and blame blame them for basically ruining her life. Which I think is a fairly heroic loss of perspective, isn't it? You are in a ruined castle surrounded by the burned remains of the many hundreds of households which used to rely upon this castle and its lord for their well-being. You're being shown around by a man who was literally in servitude to somebody who has removed the skin and muscle from several of his digits and removed him from high rank. And you're giving it woe is me. (laughs) <laughs> hmm. yeah yeah not too sure about that madam to be honest with you yeah and she does a real she does a fantastic uh coup de gras here where she says um i've heard that ned's bones are on the way back up to winterfell um and once they reach sort of my area i'm gonna just seize them and feed them to my dogs <laughs> just like jeez fucking hell now unhinged. there yeah, I was going to say, there is somebody who does not deal well 
with being turned down. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like we've, you know, we, we've all got mates who've, who've struggled with the experience of uh, of uh, being unlucky in love. But you know, seeking out the bones of somebody that's turned you down for political reasons as well, not for emotional <laughs> reasons, and having them fed to your pets. Bit much, I think. Yeah. There. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah, pretty extreme. And and do you know what? That is where we leave it for this week as well. What a place <laughs> to end. It's not exactly what a an image. <laughs> yeah. The hell? Yeah, the uh, the bones of Ned Stark being fed to dogs. <laughs> if, if as if the Stark fans haven't been through enough. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> My word, that'll be the last scene as well, won't it? It'll be Ned Stark's bones being chowed down on by a couple of massive retrievers. Yeah, I've got to admit, at this stage, I'm thinking with Lady Dust. I was thinking, reading this part as they're off to the crypts and stuff. I'm thinking, oh, she's um, she's another Mandalay. They're going to get down to the crypts, and she's going to be like, "Aha! I'm actually going to help you." But she's obviously she's just another person who, well, really hates the Starks. And I'm kind of thinking, well, what's the point of her? I don't really understand yeah. why. why, just, why just read oh, that. Matt, do not open up that can of worms, though, Matt, because that. <laughs> You do not want to go there. What is the point of this character who hates somebody that I like? That's you're right off the whole book for that reason. <laughs> yeah. If you can tell us what's the point of Lady Dustin, sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail dot com. <laughs> or if you want to give us a blow by blow account of what exactly happened way back when with that ni- ancient history of the the knife and Brandon and Bran Stark and all this, who 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 tried to assassinate him. Or any other thoughts on the podcast or the book? You know, maybe you want to chastise us for our lack of Game of Thrones knowledge, which we we always we're always quite honest. We you know we don't (laughs) pretend to we don't pretend to be the experts on this. Don't get your excuses in, Matt. Don't get your excuses in. I was going to say if if you're looking for well, you know, if you're looking for a, a more extensive knowledge of of a song of ice and fire. You're probably not still listening, but if you were, you know, there are there are better podcasts for that around. <laughs> we try and take a bit more of a sort of rough and tumble, more I don't know, casual look at the at the series, don't we? Yeah, yeah. If you can't take the comically inept chomping, get out of the shark cage. I think is our <laughs> our approach to this. <laughs> We jeopardising our um, listenership a bit here. Um, anyway, <laughs> so we we do love you all though. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Stay. You can also find us on Twitter at Shark Live Royal, as ever. And uh, Dave, we're running at beyond an hour now, so we're we're a bit meaty for our yeah. usual podcast length. So unless you've anything else to add, I think we can leave it there. Not at we? all. Not at all. Not at all. Let's onwards, onwards into the deeper deepening winter. Mm. Oh, I'd also like to say just before I go, if you're involved in a heavy storm while at sea, don't don't be cooking with boiling fat <laughs> oil. <laughs> Maybe just go for the, go for a salad for once. <laughs> Consider a cheese sandwich. Yeah, I prefer a flan. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a Shark Liver Oil public service announcement. <laughs> Stay safe, kids. On the high seas. <laughs> <laughs>